Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. Wow, we last weekend celebrated 38 baptisms. We had 36 at the beach and two others out here on our campus. So we praise God for all that he's doing here at First Baptist. And we're so honored to have you here. And if this is your first time worshiping with us, we are just excited. And so in the little chair back in front of you is this little QR code. Uh, you can use this to help you connect to us, or you can turn it around, fill out whatever information you want to share with us, put it in one of our connection boxes, or go to one of our uh, areas out in the, in the commons called our Next Step area. You give them this card. They give you a bag. Inside is free Chick-fil-A coupons for tomorrow, because uh, if you go today, it won't work. You can try seven times around and still won't work. Uh, but you go in tomorrow and you can get God's chicken for the glory of God. All right. We're so happy to have you here this morning. Take your copy of God's Word. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. Didn't we have just a wonderful time of worship this morning? Just so happy to see you guys. And I know all of you got a lot of sleep this morning and uh, hopefully you're fired up for a five-hour sermon because uh, I drank one of those five-hour energy drinks. So uh, just kidding. I wouldn't do that. I would die. Anyway, Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 Page number one in your Bibles. Uh, let's stand as we read God's Word. Genesis 1, verse 26. The Bible says through Moses, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God cares about the creeps. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, chapter 3, verse 16. God is speaking. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And the, to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curses is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorn, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for you were taking, for, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. You may be seated. Who am I? The answer to that question has changed dramatically in our society in recent years. Uh, 
the answer to that question comes from a worldview, and the worldview of our society has shifted from a Christian, Judeo-Christian worldview to a post-Christian secular worldview. It has shaped society, and our society has been shaped in the forms of social media, television, education, business, and politics. While many of us are concerned about the weather of our day, we need to look at the overall climate of our culture. The weather that we are experiencing today as a nation is symptomatic of a greater cultural climate in the Western society called expressive individualism. Carl Truman, in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, says that expressive individualism refers to the idea that in order to be fulfilled, to be an authentic person, to be genuinely me, I need to be able to express outwardly or perform publicly that which I feel I am on the inside. So the most authentic individual, the most real person, is the person who expresses or performs outwardly that which they feel they are inwardly. And so in our day, we have sayings like live your truth or you do you or never apologize to anyone for who you are. And these are the rally cries of a postmodern society raging against their creator. And so how do we answer this question? How do we answer the question, who am I? And more importantly, how do we help those who are struggling to answer that question? And so on the onset is today we talk about God's design for gender and God's design for sexuality. Every time we answer those questions to those that are struggling, we should always answer them with compassion and conviction. We should always tell the truth in love, the truth with tears. We should love those who are held captive by the deception of our day. The opening chapters of Genesis are foundational to our faith. If you reject Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you're going to struggle with the rest of the Bible because these chapters teach us God's design for the universe, for God's design for humanity. And also, not only does it teach us God's perfect design for those things, but it also teaches us that our world is broken by sin. Humanity is broken. Relationships are broken with God. Relationships are broken with each other. And we are broken, have a broken relationship to the world around us. Everything in the universe is broken. And yet not without hope. Because God so loved the world that he loved us enough to give us his word and to get personally involved to fix our brokenness so that you and I can recover and pursue his perfect design for our lives. And so as we talk about a very, very complex issue, here's what I want you to leave with, is that God's compassion is greater than sin's corruption in our confusion over gender and sexuality, that God's compassion is greater than our confusion. So let's just walk through that. Number one, let's look at God's intention for gender. We saw in verse 27 that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. As you read the whole of Scripture, the Bible knows no other gender categories besides male and female. 
after God created man, he said that it was not good for man to be alone. The crescendo of chapter one is each day God looked at what he created and said it was good. But he gets to day number six and he's created man in his image and he says it's not good for man to be alone, so he creates the woman. After God creates the woman, God said it was very good. And what this teaches us men is that women make life and the universe very good. That was a great moment for an amen, men. <laughs> you blew it. You blew it. All the other services got it. You didn't get it. But listen, God was not forgetful, nor was he absent-minded in the creation of humanity. God's original plan always included women, but yet how Moses presents it shows us God's design and God's order in creating gender. God made the male first, and then he made the female, both in his image, but by order, by design. And then he blessed both of them and gave them both the task of being fruitful and multiplying, filling and subduing and having dominion over the earth to reflect God's glory and God's goodness. Kevin DeYoung says that far from being a mere cultural construct, God depicts the existence of a man and a woman as essential to his creational plan. The two are neither identical nor interchangeable. Men and women are equally important to God, but also importantly different. Men and women are equal in the eyes of God in value and dignity and worth, but yet are different in design and calling. They're different in function. Men and women are different biologically and chromosomally. Every cell in my body and your body is stamped with either XX chromosome or XY chromosome. We're different anatomically with different plumbing. No description needed. <laughs> we are different physically. Different muscle structures, bone structures, and hormones. We're different neurologically, different brain sizes, and are wired different. None of these differences make one gender inferior or superior to the other. God made us different so that he can make us one. God made the two genders to be a more complete presentation of the image of God than just one of them alone. And he did so by making us complementary. Two genders reflect a more complete view of God. So God created man to be a man to the very depths of his humanity. And he created a woman to be a woman to the very depths of her humanity. God created us, uh, each of us, as a complementary expression of the image of God. And so both sexes bear God's image fully on their own, but yet each also reflect God's image in a unique and distinct way. And so we are better together. Uh, the male and the female together have the ability to restrain the worst in each other and to bring out the best in each other. Rebecca McLaughlin, who you'll hear me quote some this message, uh, writes this. She says that God could have designed things so that you didn't uh, need both a man and a woman to make a baby. He could have miraculously made a new crop of people every 20 years or so, or he, he could have just made us like amoebas that can reproduce by themselves. But instead, God made us male and female and designed us so that new humans could be created through a deep connection between a man and a woman. And that deep connection pictures Jesus's love for his church. See, God loves pictures. We talked about this 
a few weeks ago. And in that male-female relationship is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of Jesus's love for the church. And so God's intention for two genders was for human flourishing and human happiness. So God created both males and females to enjoy him, to enjoy his creation, and to enjoy each other. And we are most satisfied in life when we function according to our design. And as John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And so our genders point us to our longing for completion. We're longing. And that longing for completion forces us to look outside of ourselves and forces us to look towards God. Now, one of the problems in, in most marriages is that we tend to look to our spouse to complete us and to meet the expectations that only God can meet. And yet what we see is in a marriage relationship and the relationship between a man and a woman that forces us to look outside of ourselves and look to God who can completely satisfy and fulfill our every longings. And so God's intention for gender is male and female, binary structure. But not only do we see God's intention for gender, but secondly, I want you to see sin's corruption of gender. And that's when we get to chapter three, that after Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God's design, when they chose to reject God's authority and to do their own thing, as we saw last week, a chain reaction of devastating consequences followed. Spiritual death and brokenness occurred. Dysfunction and corruption now twist God's good, God's good gift. And sin takes what is good and distorts it into being what is evil. Sin, as we looked at last week, has consequences. We see in chapters, chapter 3, 16 through 19, that the earth has become cursed. Natural disaster exists. Thorns and thistles, tornadoes, floods, famine, earthquake, hurricanes, mosquitoes, and no And birds dropping on our vehicle, which is a part of the fall. Work becomes hard. See, before sin, work was a delight. Now it's difficult. Because of our fallen nature, we are either lazy with no motivation or we're workaholics where work is our God. Relationships become dysfunctional. Husbands and wives fight. Kids are evil. Parenting is tough, right? Cain, as we'll look at next week, kills his brother Abel. Sex becomes dangerous. People fight over it. Crimes of sexual passion occur. Lives are ruined by sexual abuse. And what we see is that the rebellion against the designs of our creator manifests itself in the very foundational core of who we are as a person. We are rotten to the core. We are bad to the bone. Sin causes us to call good things evil and evil things good. Sin causes us to take things that God created as normal and to believe that they're abnormal. Sin causes us to turn God's good gifts into idols that we worship created things rather than the creator. Sin corrupts how men and women treat each other. As we walk through this in verses 16 and 17 and 18, you'll see that that men can become passive and lazy or men can become macho and abusive and chauvinistic, misogynistic. Women can become emasculating, domineering, or they can become codependent upon the man. We also see that sin causes the dehumanization of people. And one of the manifestations of dehumanization is not just slavery, but it's pornography. 
Pornography is sexual slavery. It is exploiting predominantly women for self-gratification. It is using someone's body for our pleasure and devaluing their dignity. Pornography is a sin against our bodies and it's a sin against God's design. It distorts human sexuality and makes us sick, yet it is a secret sin in the church. Psychologists and uh, scientists tell us that this type of, of, of uh, stimulation uh, causes a rewiring of our brains, a distortion of our relationships with other people. Sin corrupts how we think of ourselves and how we think of our gender. It causes sexism. There's two extremes to this. Sin corrupts in this way that we can think that our gender makes us better than other genders. And so you remember as a kid, you would say, no girls allowed, no boys allowed. Boys rule, girls drool. Girls have cooties. Does anybody remember cooties? But then when you grow up, you realize, hey, you know, girls don't have cooties like they used to. But yet, because of sin, we can have this feeling of superiority, thinking that our gender is better than other genders. And that's one extreme that sin corrupts gender. But another way that sin corrupts gender is we begin to hate our gender and wish we were another gender. And we get mad at God for making us the person that we are, and we rage against our designer. It's how the corruption of sin. But one other thing that people don't think about when it comes to the consequences of a fallen, broken world is that the fall not only uh, gets us at the psychological level, but also the genetic and biological level with biological and genetic dysfunction. And so people are born with predispositions of, uh, because of our broken uh, genetic code. Uh, we are uh, born prone to sicknesses and to illness, and we're prone to just dysfunction. Uh, there are at least a, a thousand people born every year in America that are categorized as intersex. To be intersex is to have, to have both male and female anatomic and chromosomal characteristics. And so this uh, intersex is a spectrum. So like I said, about one out of every 5,000 births in America uh, is born with this genetic biological con issue. And it's a spectrum. So some are far worse or far extreme than the others. But yet, as a church, we should show tremendous compassion on people who are born with this genetic biological dysfunction. And so many people uh, who are born intersex are actually unable to have children at all. And so Jesus uh, spoke about this in Matthew chapter 19 when he spoke about those who were born eunuchs. They are born this way as a sign of a fallen, broken world. And so here's what I want you to understand. If that is you or you know someone, I want you to understand that, that being born with this uh, genetic biological dysfunction doesn't make you any less of a person and does not make you unable to be used by God. But what I want you to see is that we live in a fallen, broken world in which everything is fallen and broken. And so it is sin's corruption that leads to our confusion, our confusion over gender. So Moses here in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are, is making truth claims. These truth claims will be affirmed by Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. As a matter of fact, you will have people say, you know, Jesus never spoke about, spoke about human, human sexuality. Jesus never spoke about gender. Jesus never said anything. He just preached love. Well, the problem is, is that those who say that haven't read the Bible. 
Because in Matthew chapter 19, verse four, Jesus affirms what Moses says that in the beginning, God created male and female. This is a truth claim Moses shares through inspiration and Jesus affirms. And the truth claim is that the original design for humanity was two genders, male and female, binary. And this truth claim affirms that since God created and designed humanity with a purpose, that being the creator gives him the sole authority to say what is right and what is wrong. But yet in our postmodern world, the belief of a personal God is eroding. And so our society does not believe in an actual personal God. And if there is no actual personal God, then that means that there is no authority. And if there's no authority, there is no moral right or wrong. And if there is no moral right or wrong, there are no fixed realities. And all there is, is confusion. And so if there is no God, then everything is deconstructed. And your identity is self-determined. You can decide who you are. You can decide who you want to be. You know, that's the interesting thing. If you look at the past 50 years, Tim Keller pointed this out recently in a podcast in which he said 50 years ago, the goal of most people was to be a good person. They're good people and they're bad people. And the goal of most people was to be a good person. Then he said about 20 years ago, that changed from a desire to being a good person to then the desire of people's hearts was to find out who they are and be that person. And that now has changed within the past decade to five years. Instead of finding out who you are, it is now you decide who you are and everyone must celebrate who you decide you want to be. And so whatever you believe you are, even if it doesn't conform with physical reality, is now your truth. It's my truth, your truth. And so one of the biggest violations in our American Western culture is to not recognize and appreciate my truth. See, in the modern culture, self-identity is your genuine identity, and it's the highest value and the highest virtue in life. And so if you get rid of God, you deconstruct everything else so that when it comes to gender, here's the thought. My body does not have to define whether I am a male or a female. My feelings do. And so if my feelings do not match my body, I should be able to decide what I want to be called and what I don't want to be called. And so if I feel like I am a man trapped in a woman's body, or if I feel like I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, or if I don't feel that I'm either, or if I'm both, then I can decide what I want to be. Secular psychologists call this condition gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is, according to the definition, their definition is a severe discomfort in one's biological sex. About a decade ago in America, around 0.01% of Americans identified as being gender dysphoric or being transgendered. Think about that, 0.01%, 100th of 1%. Today, 10 years later, 10 years ago is 2012, the last year Kentucky won a national championship in basketball. 10 years ago. Today, more than 2% of high school students in America identify themselves as being gender dysphoric and transgendered with the majority of them being females. 
Over the last decade, there has been a thousand to five thousand percent increase of white females aged 11 to 21 year old with gender dysphoria. 2016, Brown University researcher Lisa Littman began studying this spike in trans identification among teenage girls. She concluded that peer influence and social media had a lot to do with the transgender teen phenomena. Based on parent reports, none of the girls had exhibited symptoms of gender dysphoria at the age that it typically first presents itself in early childhood. Lisa Littman continues, she says that popular social media influencers and celebrities insist that if you feel uncomfortable in your body, you're probably transgendered. Now think about this. Those of you that were in middle school, when I was, every middle schooler is uncomfortable in their body, right? And so she continues, she says, many promise that if you start a course of testosterone, all your problems will go away. Now, here's the question. Do you think that's just an accident that we've come to this place? Generation Z, the current future generation, the generation that's now in high school and middle school and elementary school, Generation Z right now reports that between 20 and 30% identify as LGBTQ+. Did you hear what I said? 20 to 30%. It is a staggering spike that has taken place in just a decade. A recent cover of Time magazine declared that we have reached a transgendered moment. And on the cover of that magazine had a picture of a transgendered man who was pregnant. You have transgendered models, transgendered athletes, transgendered television shows, transgendered pastors. You know what it is? It's indoctrination. It's an agenda. It's the doctrine of demons that is infiltrating our society. Many, much of which is coming through our smart phones. Parents are struggling because gender dysphoria is being affirmed at their school and in their society. I've spoken Saturday and this morning to two educators in our public schools here in Collier County. And they both said that the district has pretty much written a policy that they must, as educators, affirm whatever the child says that they are. And that furthermore, they're not allowed to share with their parents what the child is affirming themselves to be. And what parents are now told that if you do not affirm your kids and who they say that they are, and if you do not help them be who they want to be, then your kids could be suicidal. But here's what you have to understand. If you are a parent, it is your job as a parent to teach and guide your child through every stage of life. Parents are tasked to save their children from themselves. And so if your kid comes to you this afternoon and puts a cape on and says, mom and dad, I am a superhero. I've been watching Marvel and I've decided that I'm a superhero and I'm going to go climb on the roof and jump off. Let me just give you some advice, parents. Do not affirm their decision no matter how passionately they believe that they are a superhero. 
You explain to them the consequences. You tell them if you think you're a superhero and you get on the roof and you think that you can fly, you will die. And if they don't listen to your reason, you don't just throw up your hands and say, well, let's just let them experience the consequences. Why? Because you are a parent and your job as a parent is to protect your child, not to enable your child. The worst thing that any parent could ever do is give their child what they want. Our job is to point them to what they need and who they need. And here's why. You say, Pastor, why are you so passionate about it? Here's why. Because according to scientists and statistics, okay, we're going to, they, they harp about science. Let's bring up some science. Between 80 and 95% of kids with gender dysphoria, 80 to 95% of them end up identifying to their true birth genetic gender after puberty. In other words, 80 to 95% of people that legitimately struggle with gender dysphoria grow out of it. And that is why it is never a good idea to do irreversible damage to a child by giving them what they want. See, the modern view is that psychology and emotions are what define your reality, it tells you what your truth is. And I've spoken to many people who have gone through the transition, who are transitioning or have reversed back from a transition. And you'll hear some of those struggles that they've had. They'll say that something deep inside of me told me that I am not connected to my body and I am not my biological sex. And I've been struggling with this and I hear this. And I, and I want you to understand that you listen to them and hear their hearts. But yet here's the problem. It is easy to think that making a change to your body is the key to happiness. Many who have undergone transition surgeries or hormone therapies are often more miserable, more depressed, and more suicidal. Statistics show and, and point that the suicide rate of those who have gone under the knife to transition are 20 times higher to commit suicide than those who are gender dysphoric and have not. Why is it? Why is it that those who have actually gone through the surgery are way more prone to suicide? Here's why. Reality. Reality is that tr transgendered men do not become women. And reality is transgendered women do not become men because we cannot transition our sex or our gender because we are not God. Ironically, the same popular culture that tells us to believe in and trust in science as the ultimate authority in life is the same culture that tells us that it, when it comes to gender, do not listen to science. Rebecca McGoffin 
It says that many people today think that Christians are foolish for believing in things that cannot be measured with the tools of science. But the idea that there is a deep thing within us that tells us if we are male or female against the evidence of our physical bodies do not line up with science at all. See, without belief in a creator God who made humans in his image, we are left without any real definition of what it means to be human, let alone what it means to be male or female. And all that is left is confusion and hurt. Because sin's corruption leads to our confusion. And when you get rid of God and you become your own God and you decide what's right, it just leads to brokenness. And it doesn't matter if you're struggling with your sexuality or if you're struggling with your gender or if you're struggling with other sexual sins or greed or lust or anything else, anger. Here's what you have to understand. The further we get from God's design, the deeper the misery we experience. Listen, young people, the further you get from God's design for your life, the further you get involved with alcohol or drugs or sex or whatever, the more miserable you feel. Now, that would be a pretty depressing sermon if we ended there. Sadly, that's where a lot of people in the church will just stop. They say, well, God's got a design. You all are a bunch of heathens. God hates heathens. But that would be a horrible place to end a message. That would be like ending the Bible in Genesis 3, 8. But God doesn't end that. Because here's what I want you to leave with. Is that God has a compassion for confused people. God has compassion for confused people. Could you imagine being Adam and Eve? What would it have been like? You've just broken the world. You're now naked and ashamed and afraid. You're confused. God had said, you will surely die. Everything that the snake promised seemed like something great, but it was misery. What was God going to do? The first instincts that they had was to cover their nakedness and to hide in the trees, hoping that maybe God couldn't find them. Because if God can't find them, he can't kill them. What was God going to do? God doesn't blast them to hell nor send them into oblivion. First, he deals with the devil, chapter 3, verse 5. In 14 and 15. Second, he pronounces the consequences of sin because written within the fabric of the universe is that sin has consequences. But yet he does something remarkable. We know that the consequences of all sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And the day that they rebelled against God and went against his design, they died spiritually. But notice what God does. Chapter 3, verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Does God blast them to hell? No. Does God condemn them? No. He covers their shame. He covers their guilt. He covers their fear with clothing. Clothing that came from an animal, an animal that God created and God killed. An innocent creature to cover the confusion, the shame, the guilt, 
and the fear of sinful people. He covered these rebels with his love. He absorbed the cost of their rebellion. They rejected God's design for them, but God did not eternally reject them. And the same is true for you and for me. We are all sinners. Everyone in this room, everyone watching online, we are all sinners. All of us have decided to go our way rather than God's way. Listen to me, friends. Our sin may not be as noticeable as others' sins are to us. But our sin is always noticeable to God. You may think that you can fake it. And you may think that no one will ever know. But God knows. And yet, he is willing to forgive you. And so as a church, our response to someone who is confused about their gender and sexuality should be truth with love. We do not affirm their sin, but we point them to their Savior. We love them and we point them to the only one who has the power to clear their confusion and change their lives. This week I was interviewed by National Public Radio and different entities about what's going on um, with what happened yesterday in our town where there was a, an LGBTQ celebration at a local congregation here in our town. And they want to know, what should our response be? What's, what, what's, what should you say? And, and what I shared with them is, is what God's word says, is that God created two genders, male and female. God has a, a plan and a design for human sexuality, for for God's glory and their good. And our response as a church should not be to pick at them or to pick on them, but to preach the truth in love to them, to have compassion for broken people, for hurting people. Listen, this is a very, very complicated issue. And for some of you, you have nobody in your family, no one in your life that struggles with this. And you think, how could anyone ever struggle with this? And for others in this room, you think of someone in your family or yourself or someone that you know, and they're struggling with this. And here's the interesting thing. For those in this room who do not understand the struggle of this because of the indoctrination that's coming through our society, we don't have compassion on those who are. But yet, if we have a sin and there's something in our lives and in our families and there's something we're struggling with, we want people to have compassion on us. And so, the greatest apologetic for our church, for broken people, is love and compassion. It's to listen to them and point them to the truth of the gospel because only God can change their life. No amount of things you post on social media, no elected official, no Supreme Court decision can change a human heart. Only Jesus can. 
And sadly, many in the church are willing to win an argument to lose an audience. And I'm not saying we should water down or back down. We speak the truth. We do not back up, shut up, or sit down. We speak the truth, but we do so with tears in our eyes, pleading for broken people to come home. Because the only difference between us and anyone else is the grace of God. And the only reason we're saved is because Jesus, the truly innocent one, died so that I can be clothed in his righteousness. Just as those animals died to clothe Adam and Eve, so Jesus took my sin, my shame, so that I can get his love and his right standing before God. Let me end. I know we need to end. If you or a family member or a friend are struggling with your gender or sexuality, or if you are struggling with who you are, there is grace. There is a God who knows how you are made, fearfully and wonderfully made. He knows who you are. He knows how you struggle, and he loves you enough to help you recover his design for your life. And so, when we find ourselves struggling, understand this, that we find our true selves not by following our feelings, but we find our true selves by following Jesus. And when our desires don't line up with following Jesus, we need to trust Jesus anyway. Rebecca McLaughlin continues. She says, as a Christian, I do believe that there's a voice deep inside me that tells me who I am. That voice is God's spirit who unites every believer to Jesus like a body to its head or a wife to her husband. The Spirit speaks through God's word and guides his people. This voice inside is not disconnected from our bodies because the same God who lives within us by his Spirit also created our bodies. Jesus tells us that God created humans from the beginning, male and female. If we're trusting in Jesus, he knows us from the inside out and he makes us belong even when we feel like we don't fit in. Choose you this day who you will trust. Will you trust popular culture or will you trust the person of Jesus Christ? Will you trust in you or will you trust in your creator? As you drive into our parking lot on this campus, you will see a sign that says, you are loved here. Why? Because this is not a country club for people who have it all figured out. This is a hospital for those that are sick and those that are dying who desperately need Jesus. And if that's you today, he is here and you can trust in him. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths of your word. We thank you, Father, for in the midst of difficulty, midst of confusion, that we can have clarity because of what Jesus has done. And Father, I pray for anyone in this room or those watching online or listening, that God, that your Holy Spirit 
would do a work that only your Holy Spirit can do. Lord, we love you. And we thank you that it is not who we say we are. It is not who the world says we are, but it's who you say we are that ultimately matters. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand and let's sing. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.